Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Sony, Disney, Spidey, and Feige, a study in brinksmanship. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we've got an unexpected episode of Virtual Legality. We're not talking about video games, at least not directly. And we're not even really talking about software or technology. Instead, we're just going to talk about contracts and failed contract negotiations, right? You want to talk about insurance policies, maybe indemnification provision? No? You want to talk about something maybe a little bit more relevant to the pop culture landscape? I don't really blame you. So let's take a look at this deadline bomb that dropped yesterday. Disney-Sony standoff ends Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige's involvement in Spider-Man. Now, if you've followed Virtual Legality in the past or you've followed the Hogue Law YouTube channel in the past, you know we are big fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU. We're big fans of what they've done with Spider-Man and a number of the other characters in that franchise environment. And we're big fans of what Kevin Feige has managed to put together because, frankly, there hasn't been anything like the MCU in the past, and he has churned out success after success. Now, if you're not familiar with kind of the background here, Marvel in the 90s wound up licensing basically all of its heroes to various studios. They licensed the Fantastic Four and the X-Men to Fox, They licensed Spider-Man to Sony, and this was all before Marvel Studios started and really started the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Iron Man in 2008. But as a result of those licenses, a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was based on what they still had in stock in their library of superheroes. And halfway through the MCU's first iteration, the 10 years that ended with Endgame this year, or Far From Home if if you're counting that movie as well, uh, halfway through they decided, hey, it would be great if we could get Spider-Man back. Because one of the reasons Sony had Spider-Man in the first place is that Spider-Man is one of the most popular heroes in all of pop culture. So they worked with Sony, and in a very unusual alliance between two major movie studios, they agreed that if Marvel helped produce the Spider-Man movies, Sony would finance them and would take the large, large bulk of the profits from the actual movies. Now, at no point did Marvel ever license out the marketing rights to Spider-Man. They could still sell Spider-Man dolls and Spider-Man comics, obviously, Spider-Man pillowcases, whatever it else has Spider-Man on it. So Sony was only invested in the actual motion picture uh, returns, the profits, the return on investment that they receive directly from their sales of the motion picture, uh, whether that's in home, uh, home video or, or in the box office itself. But after Endgame and now Far From Home this year, As it turns out, Sony and Disney haven't been able to come together on the terms of what their contract should look like. And that's what Deadline exposed yesterday. And we're going to talk about that because what I'm seeing in my Twitter feed and my social media online in various articles really across the Internet because the MCU is as popular as it is is a lot of blame, a lot of misunderstanding about what's happening here, whether Disney's at fault, whether Sony's at fault, what's going on. I will tell you there's a lot to unpack 
and I do this for a living. Now, I don't do billion dollar deals. I don't do $400 million exchanges for a living. We stay a little bit closer to the ground here at Hoglaw, but we do negotiate high stakes contracts. I will tell you right now, I have negotiated against Disney. I've negotiated against DreamWorks. I've negotiated against these media conglomerates in the past. So I'm familiar at least a little bit with their low level, more ground tier thinking on how they really demand what they want from the contracts. And they are very, very used to the concept of essentially saying, hey, we're going to take our ball and go home if we don't get what we want. And that's what I think happened here. Now you've got two juggernauts in Sony and Disney really on both sides saying, we'll take our ball and go home if we don't work this out. And that's how you get into a situation where at least on the outside, none of this makes sense to anybody. This has been a hugely successful partnership between Sony and Disney. We're going to look at the numbers as part of this video and podcast, but it's been a hugely successful partnership. And in general, when you are making money hand over fist, and if you've had this hugely successful partnership, you don't walk away. But if you're trying to negotiate your contract, that is a threat that you have to make if you want to use your leverage. And we're going to talk about that strategy as well. So let's take a look at the actual details of what happened here, because I think this gets lost in just the headline, hey, Spider-Man's no longer in the MCU. Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige won't produce any further Spider-Man films because of an inability by Disney and Sony Pictures to reach new terms that would have given the former a co-financing stake going forward. So as I said, right now, Sony funds all of the Spider-Man movies. If you look at Far From Home or Homecoming, they funded the whole thing. They paid for its creation. And what Disney has been doing is they've essentially been lending Kevin Feige from Marvel to go and produce, to go be a creative force behind those movies. And in exchange for that, they got a certain amount of money, which we're going to look at here. It says, Disney asked, this was their ask for what they wanted the future of this relationship to look like, that future Spider-Man films be a 50-50 co-financing arrangement between the studios. And there were discussions that this might extend to other films in the Spider-Man universe. 50-50 co-financing implying, although it's not specifically stated here in the deadline article, that they wanted to pay half of the freight in order to create the movie itself, but they also wanted to get half the profits. In general, if you're going to have an investment like this, you're going to be a partnership, you're going to have the returns of that investment come back out in roughly the same proportions as the money that went in. So you see Disney advocating for a 50-50 split. Sony turned that offer down flat. Sony's not interested in 50-50 because they're looking at this and saying, well, what kind of risk do we have here? Yes, Disney added value. Yes, this all went up in value because of Disney's involvement. But did it go so far up in value that we should owe them 50%, even if they're taking away some of our risk on the on the downside because they're going to be co-financing it? If you're Sony, you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, even when we failed, we don't necessarily see making a Spider-Man movie as a risk. This isn't a situation where, hey, we could all lose all our money. It's more like, hey, we didn't make as much money as we thought we would. And once you get into that scenario, somebody helping finance and taking a bigger cut of the profits really isn't that attractive. That's what Sony's looking at when Disney makes that offer. Sources said that Sony, led by Tom Rothman and Tony Vincicara, came back with other configurations, but Disney didn't want to do that. Now, that's an interesting part. I've highlighted that in yellow here because we don't get any more information as to what that might have looked like. When you say, hey, Sony came back with different configurations, were they really tiny minor changes to what the current situation is? Were they somewhere in the middle? It seems unlikely that that is the case because these sources that Deadline appears to have would have mentioned if Sony tried to come back with something as a real compromise. This reads to me from afar, and obviously speculation, as something that is not really that useful to Disney, that they weren't really talking about moving from where they're sitting right now 
and we're going to get there at the end of this paragraph, but something that they thought maybe could be attractive enough to Disney. But Sony did not want to share its biggest franchise. They don't want a 50-50 on Spider-Man. Sure, Disney would be putting up half the funding, but the risk is in how you, how much you are going to make back in profit. Disney wasn't at all interested in continuing the current terms where Marvel receives in the range of 5% of first dollar gross sources set. So we now have a complete picture, or at least a somewhat complete picture, of what happened here. Right now, Disney lends Kevin Feige to Sony to help make good Spider-Man movies, and in exchange, they get 5% of gross. That's important. The word gross there is different from profit. Gross meaning that they get 5% of every dollar that comes in, regardless of expenses, regardless of shares, things like that. And so they get 5% of these numbers. We're going to do a few calculations here live on virtual legality as we get further on in the, uh, the video and the podcast. But suffice it to say, 5% for essentially an executive services in a kind of normal universe is pretty darn good. You're talking about millions and millions of dollars for essentially lending one of your producers to somebody for a short period of time. And so this was attractive to Sony and Disney just a few years back because it made sense to everybody. Sony really needed the help, and we're going to look at their numbers for Amazing Spider-Man and how it was declining. Sony got that help. Disney really wanted Spider-Man in the MCU, not the least of which is because Kevin Feige appears to be a big fan of Spider-Man. And if you are Disney, one of your primary goals in life is to make sure Kevin Feige is happy because he has made you so, so much money in the last 10 years. If he wants Spider-Man, you're going to try to help him get Spider-Man. Until yesterday, of course. So what we've got in this situation is Disney asking for a change in the deal. Sony would have been perfectly happy to continue with the 5% relationship, presumably forever, because they were making much more money than they otherwise would have. They were accruing most of the value for the benefits that they were getting from the Disney relationship, and Disney wasn't happy with that. We're going to do math, as I said, and we're going to see exactly why Disney wasn't happy with that. But I also want to talk about what this is, because you're seeing a lot of folks say, hey, Sony is to blame for what happened with Spider-Man. To some extent, that's true. But you're also seeing folks say Disney is to blame. And unfortunately, I'm going to give you the lawyerly answer here. To some extent, that's true. It takes two to tango when you've got a failed contract negotiation like this. And Disney asking for 50%, in my view, is really an opening salvo. You're Disney, you've got all the leverage, you've got the MCU, you've got Fox, you can isolate the Spider-Man property and make it much less valuable if you're so inclined. And so you say, hey, look, we want to do a 50-50, but in the back of your head, if you're opening with 50-50, in general, and I can't promise this because I don't know what Disney's thinking, but in general, your opening salvo is not necessarily where you think or you're willing to end up. You say, hey, we want to do a 50% split. Sony comes back and says, all right, Let's do a 50% split after a profit certain for Sony so that we can actually try to establish what your contribution to over and above what Sony could make on itself actually is. Or let's just talk about 40% from a profit standpoint or 30 or 25. And it's possible that in this yellow highlighted text that I've put in, in, in this video that they came back with some kind of compromise like that, but it's implied that they didn't. Come back with other configurations doesn't really imply that the actual numbers are changing, just that perhaps some of the logistical items, some of the details around what Kevin Feige would be doing would be changing. And so I look at that and I say, mm, I don't think Sony actually came back with a counteroffer. And instead, Disney put out that number, didn't get a response, and, and both studios said, all right, 
we're not willing to budge from 5% if you're Sony. And if we, if we don't, if you, if Disney doesn't give us Kevin Feige for that number, we're going to, we're going to go away. We're going to do our own Spider-Man thing. We think we're good enough to do it. Disney says, Hey, if we don't get more than 5%, we're going to take Kevin Feige back and good luck to you. And we don't care. In, in essence, both sides are looking at the issue and saying, okay, we are going to risk it all because we want a better contract situation for ourselves. Uh, that's what we generally call brinksmanship. Uh, it's a game theory term from economics, but it's one that I use a lot when I'm talking to my clients about contract negotiations. I've pulled up a website here from Effectivology, which I hadn't heard of before, but they had a nice paragraph that talks about what I want to talk about when I mean brinksmanship. This is titled Walking on the Edge as a Strategic Decision. Brinksmanship is the act of pushing volatile engagements to the brink of active conflict with the goal of achieving a positive outcome for yourself. For example, brinksmanship could involve telling the opposing party in a negotiation that if they won't agree to all your demands, then you'll walk away from the negotiation. And that's definitely brinksmanship. But in this case, it's even more pronounced because you already have an existing relationship that has proved to be a financial success to both parties. In that circumstance, it is entirely irrational to walk away from the entirety of the profits that you have made. And so it's in that irrationality that you have to threaten to walk away. And I believe Disney did threaten to walk away. I believe Sony probably did as well. And then they did. You get to this point in time. Now, is this the final say? No, Sony and Disney still exist. And so you're going to have continued discussions. As a matter of fact, there's some notion, and I have a similar notion, that whoever the source is here is probably leaking this information from one or the other side to try to get the, the sides back to the negotiating table. Because if you don't negotiate this out, then Sony's off on its own. Disney doesn't have what it wants, and they had clearly set up in Endgame and in Far From Home that Spider-Man was going to be a key cog in the new Avengers lineup after the Infinity Saga and after their current kind of run of the MCU. And without Spider-Man, that does appear to be a hole in their lineup. And so in that circumstance, you've got two parties that it makes all the sense in the world for them to find some kind of middle ground, and yet they wouldn't do it. Now, they've got a little bit more color here in the Deadline article that says, hey, Kevin Feige's got a lot of new stuff on his plate after the Fox acquisition. Disney purchased Fox earlier this year, and he's going to be taking on the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. But we're told Feige loves Spider-Man, arguably the biggest superhero character in the Marvel canon, and he would have continued if Disney and Sony could have reached New Deal terms. Now, that's Deadline's reporting. All of this is speculation, rumor, innuendo, and whatnot. But Deadline is reporting that Feige isn't the issue here. This isn't a workload problem. Feige would have done Spider-Man if he could. And that matches everything we've heard about the MCU and from Kevin Feige since the Disney-Sony deal was really started to be in the offing, is that Kevin Feige really loved Spider-Man, really wanted him involved in the MCU. And so that's why Sony and Disney went through this effort. Now, Deadline finishes this up talking about the economics, says it is understandable that the fiscally shrewd Rothman at Sony would balk at giving up half of Sony's biggest franchise to Marvel. After all, Marvel already owns the merchandising on Spider-Man. The creative template has been set on the Spider-Man films, and Watt and Holland are in place along with Amy Pascal, who became producer with Feige after she exited the executive suite after presiding over the previous Spider-Man iterations directed by Sam Raimi and Mark Webb as Sony Pictures' chief. So you have Amy Pascal coming back into the fold to be the creative executive producer on whatever the the future of the homecoming Far From Home Spider-Man franchise is. But while this is said here in Deadline with kind of a a gloss, Amy Pascal has a history of being uh, 
an issue at Sony. Uh, obviously, she was part of the, the central issue with the, the leaked emails. She's been the force behind the amazing Spider-Man movies and Mark Webb, which you see, and, and we're going to talk about why those in particular were a problem. Uh, she was, the, I believe, the creative force behind Ghostbusters 2016, which regardless of how you feel about that film, wasn't a financial success for the company, and they had to go back to the foundational principles in order to bring Ghostbusters back, and they're going through that process uh, right now. And so if you're looking at this from afar and you're just trying to look at it objectively, Amy Pascal is obviously a significant step down from having Kevin Feige as a creative force behind your Spider-Man project. And so Sony's essentially betting that she's good enough that whatever she puts out there with the Spider-Man franchise is going to be better for Sony than getting half of whatever Disney and Sony would have put together on their own. Uh, so it's really a situation where you've got two sides that have a wildly different vision of the universe and really one side in Sony thinking that they can do just about as good as Disney and one side in Disney saying, no, you can't. And we're going to use that leverage because you know in your heart that you can't to try to go extract an additional pound of flesh from you. And right now, as it stands today, that is not something uh, that has been resolved. Uh, but I do think it will in the, in the immediate future. Taking a look a little bit further, we've got a article here uh, from Gizmodo, I think it's through io9, uh, that uh, says, when contacted by io9, a Sony representative said it's their belief that dispute here, the one discussed in the deadline article, is simply over pr a producer credit and that negotiations are ongoing. They further clarified that Feige has contributed to other Spider-centric movies that he did not receive a producer credit on. Now, this is what we might call spin. Uh, you see in the deadline article that you can actually spin what they're talking about in this manner that this Sony representative is doing. And we're going to take a look at the Sony tweets in just a second. But suffice it to say, when you've got a situation where what Disney is giving to Sony is access to Kevin Feige, and that would include a credit because he's in a guild and that's how that works in Hollywood, that if Disney is refusing to give him that access, uh, if Sony can't access Kevin Feige as part of their producing crew, then you could characterize that conflict as one about a producer's credit. However, Deadline is very specific about the money being at issue here. We're going to go back to see that Deadline has updated their article after we talk about what Sony ultimately came out with. And even though you can characterize it as, hey, if we don't get 50%, then Kevin isn't coming over and you can't put him as your producer and Kevin won't get a credit. And you could argue that that's all part of a producer credit. It is a spin. And it sounds, at least to my ear, slightly disingenuous. There's nothing in the deadline article that's refuted by what the Sony representative is saying. And it's worth noting that an anonymous Sony representative isn't speaking for the company. That's not how companies speak on these matters. So it's more important to take a look at what Sony Pictures actually said early this morning, which I've pulled up on Twitter now. They've got a tweet thread here that says, Much of today's news about Spider-Man has mischaracterized recent discussions about Kevin Feige's involvement in the franchise. We are disappointed, but respect Disney's decision not to have him continue as a lead producer of our next live-action Spider-Man film. We hope this might change in the future. Again, come back to the table, Disney. We hope this might change in the future. But understand that the many new responsibilities that Disney has given him, including all their newly added Marvel properties, do not allow time for him to work on IP that they do not own. Said another way, you can kind of see exactly how these discussions went. They're talking about Disney not owning Spider-Man. 
That's certainly something that Disney said when they were advocating for a 50-50 split, saying, hey, we don't own this property. We need more money than 5%. Sony changes that, puts it out into the public and says, hey, we understand. You can't do it for 5%. We understand. But we're not going to move. And the reason Sony issues a statement like this at all is because, yeah, you had boycott Sony. You had a lot of people coming down on the side of Disney yesterday. But also because, one, they want to encourage folks to come back to the table and to discuss this further. And two, they don't want this negative goodwill to be put upon their company. They understand that this situation looks bad for them. They understand that people are not as invested in Sony running the Spider-Man universe as they are with Disney and Marvel because Disney and Marvel have done such a good job with that property. So they are trying to describe what happened in the most advantageous way to suggest that they wanted Kevin to be involved. This is not their fault. And he wasn't involved because Disney wanted to pull him back. And yes, in all likelihood, Disney wanted to pull him back because they wanted more money for his participation because they think they've outperformed a 5% contract. And I think when we look at the numbers at the end of this video, you will see that they have outperformed that contract. And it's really a question of who should get most of the profits out of that relationship. And that's what Disney and Sony have been trying to hash out. Now, you also have, as part of that, uh, the, the last uh, tweet here is Kevin is terrific and we are grateful for his help and just in general saying nice things about Kevin Feige. But you also have kind of the ancillary stuff here. Obviously, we talk a lot about video games, the video game marketplace on virtual legality. And one of the issues that we just talked about earlier this week is that Sony has purchased Insomniac Games, presumably so that they can make more Spider-Man games. And we've got an article here from IGN that says fans threaten to boycott Sony PS4 over Spider-Man leaving the MCU and start petitions. Petitions being, of course, the internet outrage flag of the modern era. Uh, but suffice it to say, I am all in favor of people being passionate about what they love. I am not uh, the cynical type that has to say, hey, you know what? It's silly to love that movie as much as you do or that property or that video game or that book or that TV series. And it's silly to love it as much as you do. Don't get passionate about it. Don't get angry about it if something doesn't go the way you want. Obviously, this channel basically came into being on the back of an essay and video on The Last Jedi uh, that I turned into the start of this channel. And so I think that while that's good, passion is important, you don't want to misplace it. We do virtual legality episodes. We do these conversations because we want people to better understand what's happening here. And I can understand being angry at both Sony and Disney. Uh, but there are a lot of factors at play here. And one thing I would say is if you're in the outrage mob, if you're really upset about this decision, and, and I'll tell you personally, I don't like this decision. I really want to see Tom Holland and Spider-Man in the future Avengers movies in the MCU under the, under the watchful eye of Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige. I want to see that happen. But one of the things that does happen when you kind of have these petitions, when you, when you act in a specific way, is you often make it more difficult for these corporations, these companies, even another party, if it's in your individual life, to come back to the table, to come and engage with you if you start acting silly. And so while I'm all in favor of passion on these kinds of things, I think it's important to look at something like this and say, all right, you probably don't need to boycott the PlayStation, which is completely separate from Sony Pictures, by the way, but you, you really don't need to boycott the PlayStation in order to send a message to Sony. One, Sony knows all well and good that this is not a situation that people are happy with. That's why you get the Twitter thread that you did from Sony Pictures is because they understand 
that they are taking on negative goodwill right this second because of how this has been portrayed and because people are used to defending Marvel and Disney because they're making good choices with the MCU. So Sony is clearly the more obvious enemy on this particular issue. Sony understands that. So it's unnecessary to really kind of do a lot of this other stuff because you are not going to move the ball with a 20,000-person petition that you're not going to buy the PlayStation 5 when we're talking about $400 million or a billion dollars in difference. This is too important to Sony Pictures. Far From Home is now their highest-grossing movie of all time. All of these decisions are way, way, way above the level of something like this, which doesn't mean you shouldn't voice your concerns. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go out there and explain exactly why you're unhappy on Twitter, on social media, on the forums that you like. But you have to think about how it is that you want to portray that. Because if you get too far afield, if you get too toxic, if you get too outraged, then a lot of the times one of the things that the corporations have to do, and and this is crisis communications and PR management, is that they have to make sure that they don't look like they're bending the knee, that they're bowing to some of these toxic elements and some of these problematic factions. So you always want to keep that in mind when you're talking about these things. But while Sony is to blame, the last thing I want to say before we do dive into the numbers is... This is not the first time that Disney has tried to use brinksmanship to try to leverage its properties, its intellectual property portfolio. This came to mind while I was doing the research for this video and podcast, but I pulled up a Mashable article, which is actually talking about a Wall Street Journal report on the economics that Disney had imposed in respect to The Last Jedi. It says, Disney has an impressive list of demands for theaters who want to show The Last Jedi. So this is really the fall of 2017. It says, this deal is getting worse all the time. Lando Calrissian's statement about his arrangement with Darth Vader could well be on the minds of theater owners, given that they reportedly have to hand over a record 65% of the ticket take from The Last Jedi to Disney. The contract to run the latest Star Wars film, which lands everywhere in just six weeks, also ups Disney's take to 70% if the theater puts a wrong foot on a number of counts, according to a Wall Street Journal report. Other blockbuster movies might give, at most a 60% take to the studio, and even then the theater would usually get more after the first week or so. Internationally, a 40% cut is more common. And you see here in this article, which I will link in the description of this video, there's a number of other requirements. They have to be in the biggest theater. This was Last Jedi in the fall of 2017. They have to run in that theater for four weeks, things of that nature. Disney knows when it has leverage, and it had leverage with Star Wars The Last Jedi. And so it said, hey, we will take our ball and go home. We will not let you run Star Wars if you don't do all of these things. And at a certain level, that's irrational. If every single theater owner said, fine, we're not running Star Wars, then Disney would be up a creek. But Disney knows that that's not going to happen. One, because all theater owners are not going to align against them in that respect. But two, because they know that Star Wars is important and was presumed to be the tentpole of that holiday season for these theater owners. Now, It's a completely different point of discussion, but it'll be interesting to see exactly what Disney can extract for the rise of Skywalker because of the somewhat divisive nature of The Last Jedi and its underperformance based on opening weekend and some other factors. So that'll be something to follow as we get closer to this kind of six weeks out from the rise of Skywalker question, because that'll tell you how Disney feels about its leverage with respect to that movie. But the point of bringing that up here is that Disney has been and always will be in the business of taking its intellectual property, figuring out what its leverage point is, figuring out right to the end of where it can ask for economic concessions and saying, hey, if you don't agree to this, we're going to take it away. We're going to take away this thing that's important to you and your livelihood. And that's what happened with Disney and Sony. So it's easy enough to say, Sony, hey, you have to make this work because your movies aren't as good as the MCU movies. But on the other side, Disney did, in fact, take a deal that was in existence, a 5% deal, 
and say, well, we're not interested in 5% anymore. We're not interested in continuing with this relationship that has worked out for all of us anymore. We want more money. And what they asked for was about 10 times the amount of money. They went from five to 50. Now, I believe there's probably something in the middle there. We're going to talk about that a little bit right now. But they absolutely came out, guns a-blazing, asked for 10 times more. And Sony said, oh my goodness, no, we think we can make something that is at least comparable to the MCU by ourselves and certainly do better than 50% of a cut uh, with Disney. So let's take a look at what Sony was looking at when they were thinking about this, this consideration. So the first thing I've pulled up here, and all of this information is from Box Office Mojo. I've made PDFs to kind of aid in the, the visual storytelling here. Uh, but we've got here the, the domestic and worldwide grosses of The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. These are the mid-2010s movies that Sony released on their own in the live-action Spider-Man. This is the Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone series of movies. Uh, and you can see here in 2012, they released The Amazing Spider-Man. 2012 is four years into the MCU. It's a, kind of the same amount of time as The Avengers. And they released this movie... And they get about 262 million domestic. They get about 750 million worldwide. Those are not numbers to sneeze at. Those are perfectly decent numbers. Uh, but Spider-Man has always done well. It's a very popular property. As we advance a couple years from there, as the MCU continues to grow in popularity, people get more and more behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sony tries to release The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in the face of the MCU, 2014. And you can see here, while it does okay... It does less than its predecessor. It does only 200 million domestic. And it does just about the same foreigns for a total of 700 million worldwide. So it's a, at best a stagnant franchise at this point. And at worst, it's actively declining. You've got Sony releasing a movie that gets 700 million in gross. And foreign money isn't as useful as domestic money to these studios because they have to give much more to their, to their placements and the, the box office holders uh, in those various locales. So they get less of the portion of the money that is earned uh, in, in foreign sales. So you've got what is a picture of a declining franchise in 2014. And Marvel approaches them and says, hey, let's do this together. Let's Disney and Sony do this together. And let's see what happens from there. So keep this in your mind. Best case scenario... As of 2012, Sony can release a Spider-Man live-action movie outside the MCU for about $750 million worldwide. Then Homecoming comes in. It's 2017. The MCU <clears throat> is running wild. This is after Spider-Man appeared in Civil War. And so he's a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you see here the number is $330 million domestic, a big increase from the domestic rake of Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Amazing Spider-Man 1, and the worldwide is $880 million. So even if we're giving Sony full credit for a $750 million worldwide, from day one, homecoming, you see a $130 million increase in the value of, of the Spider-Man franchise. So if we do a little math and we just say, all right, $880 million uh, minus $750 million, which is what Sony can do on its own, leaves you with a $130 million increase. And if you've got that, and you've got an $880 million gross, and this isn't gonna work this way exactly because these contracts aren't gonna be written this way, but if you imagine a 5% first dollar share for Disney out of $880 million, they only got $44 million out of that $130 million increase in value. Uh, in other words, 
if you're imagining that $130 million increase is shared by both parties, then Disney's essentially share in a kind of mental basis is about $65 million. So they're running 33% or so short of what they think they actually added to the transaction. This, of course, got much, much, much worse this year because Far From Home turned out to be Sony's highest grossing movie of all time. Right now, before a re-release later this month, and still with it in theaters, it has $1.1 billion worldwide and $377 million, really rapidly approaching $400 million domestically. And so what you've got with Far From Home is a situation where Sony continues to get its 5%. You look up 1, 109, 905, uh, and... Uh, oh, uh, 159, and you take 5% of that, you say, Disney, if we were just doing this math, and again, the contract's not going to work this way, but it's, a, it's an illustrative example, Disney would have gotten $55 million, which, hey, if you give one producer, you know, some weeks to go and help make Spider-Man for Sony, and you get $55 million back, that's not the worst deal in the world. Kevin Feige just made you $55 million with just his labor. That's all right. That's what Sony's looking at, saying, Disney, you made $50 million from the sky, so what are you complaining about? However, $55 million compared to the difference between $1.1 billion and what, Dis and what Sony was doing in their $750 million range is almost $400 million, right? So Sony is getting $400 million, in this case, actually $360 million, and is paying less than $60 million to Disney for the privilege. And Disney looks at this and says, oh my goodness, all right. Well, if we're getting $55 million for our work here and you're making 360 more than you would do on your own, this has to be rectified. We have outperformed our contract. And so Disney has a reason to think that. Now, do they have a reason to go and say, hey, we deserve $600 million because that's half of what we're talking about here? Probably not. Because Sony does have a reasonable belief in the fact that they can make a roughly $700, $750 million grossing picture on their own without Disney's involvement. Now, I would argue that that might be even lower as you get the MCU more and more ingrained in people and the pop culture landscape in and of itself. And if you've got a Spider-Man operating completely separate from that, that could potentially be a problem for Sony even more so than just having Andrew Garfield run around with them as stone. But Sony doesn't believe that. And, and Disney's argument is that if you're not in the MCU, you're going to immediately lose value. And Sony doesn't believe that either. So you've got a situation here where Disney's looking at this and saying, you made $400 million on our backs and you gave us 60. That's not going to work for us. And so we'd like 50%. As I said earlier in this video and podcast, one of the things that I can see as a contract negotiator and as a commercial lawyer is you could come up with a way to say, hey, after you get past $750 million, then we split 50-50. We make sure that at the end of the day, Disney gets half of $360 million. And so they, instead of 55, you know, they get something like 175. And that might be more palatable than some, somehow saying Disney gets $600 million. Uh, and I, I could have seen something work out like that. Maybe Sony offered something like that. I would doubt it based on how Deadline described what happened. But maybe Sony offered something like that. Now, the last thing here is you might say to yourself, hey, Rick, Sony has released some Spider-Man movies by itself without Kevin Feige, without Marvel. They did okay, didn't they? And I say, yeah, they did okay. You've got Venom that came out in 2018. You see here a domestic total gross of $213 million and a worldwide gross of $856 million. The worldwide box office really, really liked Venom significantly more than I think a lot of people would have guessed. And so $856 million is nothing to scoff at. 
but you still see a domestic gross at 213 million, which is almost $200 million less than what you are seeing right now with Spider-Man Far From Home. Certainly with what you saw from Endgame and Infinity War and other movies in which Spider-Man appeared. And so you've got a situation here where Sony again says, hey, 856, we did that on our own. Hey, and also we won an Oscar. We did Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I saw this a lot on my timeline and in social media. Hey, Rick, they did Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Isn't it worthwhile to think that Sony could make a good Spider-Man movie? Perhaps. Perhaps it is. Certainly Into the Spider-Verse is a good example of a movie that works very well, certainly in the animated form. But when you actually look at the finances here, and this isn't unusual for an animated movie, you see here domestically they made $190 million, but the foreign market doesn't exist. They Worldwide, they made $375 million, so they made less than $400 million worldwide and very close to the domestic pull of Spider-Man Far From Home right now. And so you've got a situation that says, yeah, maybe Sony can potentially make something that could be critically acclaimed if they've got, you know, Lord Miller and whoever else working on it, as was the case with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But will that have the same kind of financial backing? Because what we're actually talking about here is two corporations deciding on how to make the most money. And so if you're Sony, you say, yeah, maybe we can do it. But was Venom a fluke? Maybe. And is Into the Spider-Verse really the kind of direction that we want to take Spider-Man on the whole? Because while we got a lot of critical acclaim, while we got a lot of plaudits for releasing that movie, it didn't necessarily make us a ton of money. And it certainly didn't make us anywhere near the amount of money that being involved with Disney on Spider-Man live action did. As a matter of fact, $375 million worldwide for Into the Spider-Verse is very near the number we just calculated for the difference between $750 million for their live action Spider-Man and Spider-Man Far From Home. So Sony is making a lot more money in the Disney relationship than they were before the Disney relationship. And so that's how you get a situation like this. My old law and economics professor used to say that litigation and contracts and failing contract negotiation have some kind of metaphorical uh, analogous positions as litigation. That litigation primarily exists in the space where one side believes one bit about the world and the other side believes another bit about the world. And if you both agreed, you wouldn't litigate because you can figure out what your number is and exactly where you should wind up. And in this case, in a contract situation, if both sides knew exactly how they felt, if both sides knew exactly where their number was in terms of what would make sense for them to get and what to give to the other side, there's almost no chance with a $400 million increase in value to this asset that the parties couldn't find a, a happy place to live. Now, you can have irrational actions. You can have Disney acting irrationally and saying, we're not doing anything other than 50%. You can have Sony acting irrationally and saying, we're not doing anything more than 5%, but it's extraordinarily unlikely. And in all honesty, if there was a space for these two companies to live and be happy with in the middle of these two ranges, then if they didn't pursue that, we talk a lot about fiduciary duty and other things in virtual legality. If they didn't pursue that, then they would have to answer to their stockholders and really have a discussion about what the officers and management and board of these companies did to lose this massive asset value, whether you're on the Disney side or the Sony side which is one of the reasons Sony is coming out and trying to spin exactly what happened. We haven't heard from Disney yet, but I suspect Disney will probably have some words on what happened here as well. But at the end of the day, if you take nothing else from this video, I think one thing that's worth noting is that Sony going out with that tweet is suggesting that they want to get back to the table. The mere existence of the deadline article does strongly suggest that somebody is trying to leak these negotiations so that the sides come back to the table. And it is extraordinarily unlikely for something that is this profitable to have an ending like this. It would be a very, very odd separation 
for these two businesses to look at this, to look at an accrual in value of almost half a billion dollars in various circumstances and say, nah, we're not interested in doing the highest grossing movies of our studios ever again. You can walk away and good luck with Tom Hardy and Venom and Disney will be just fine without Spider-Man because we have 600 heroes. That is unlikely to be the final say in this discussion. And if I were a Spider-Man fan, if I were a fan of the MCU, if I were a fan of Disney, I would turn my eyes to D23 and the conference that Disney's about to put on talking about the future of their theme parks, the future of their movies, and a lot of other things in the Disney universe. And I would turn my eye to that and say, hmm, I think in all likelihood, there might be an announcement, there might be a fix, there might be a situation where they have something more to say about this scenario at that conference. Because I think both sides are probably working back channels. They probably don't love a lot of this stuff going public right now. And they are looking to see exactly where they can find a happy medium because somebody leaked this to deadline. Somebody may have been putting up a trial balloon to see exactly how the public would react. Disney probably rightly thought that the public would react as they have primarily on Disney's side against Sony. And that's the situation you currently find yourselves in. The last thing I want to say on this video is I wanted to talk about the deadline update that they made in response to Sony's comments that we've talked about on this video, the comments that they made to io9 about Kevin Feige's producer credit and the fact that Kevin Feige isn't available. It says, Sony Pictures spent much of yesterday trying to spin deadline about the prospective loss of Kevin Feige from future Spider-Man films. First, the studio downplayed the idea he might be leaving. Then, insiders pinned his exit on added responsibilities from the Fox acquisition of the X-Men franchise, though they declined to make a statement. All this was reflected as factors in Deadline's break of an important and widely regurgitated story, but sources maintain that Feige's exit was about money. It was about Disney seeking the 50-50 Ko-Fi stake as the price for Marvel and Feige's continued guiding hand that resulted in the delivery of Sony's biggest grossing film ever. Sony declined to meet those terms. It was an aggressive stance by Disney, which already owns the merchandise on Spider-Man, and a tough nut for Sony to swallow, giving up half of its most valuable franchise. But these talks had been going on for some time. Had Sony agreed to Disney's ask, Marvel and Feige would not have withdrawn from the Spider-Man films, sources said. And they continue with this update to say, essentially, we stand by our reporting. And there's really nothing that Sony has actually said that would suggest that their reporting was inaccurate. That Sony's not talking about the numbers involved with any of this. And regardless of whether you feel about a producer's credit or whatever spin Sony is putting on it, undoubtedly numbers and money do come into that question. So... This 50-50 versus 5% issue does appear to be something that probably has some weight to it. Obviously, Deadline is reporting from anonymous sources. You always want to take those with a grain of salt. We don't have primary source material to look at, which we like to do in virtual legality. But everything here is lined up based on what Sony has said so far to be something at least similar to the situation that actually occurred here. Disney asked for more money. Sony said no. They both essentially played a game of brinksmanship to figure out whether or not they could agree on a contract and, and threaten each other to leave. And now we're in the situation where essentially if you're sitting in a boardroom, you're trying to negotiate a contract, the other side has left. They've said, we're walking out. Now, sometimes they stay walked out. But oftentimes if there is a good partnership there, if there is a good business opportunity there, the other side walks back in and you start again. Maybe with tempers a little bit cooled, maybe understanding a little bit more about what the public thinks about your various positions, because that's an important factor in all this as well. And with the public knowledge, with this leaked information, with all of these various media outlets reporting on this situation, maybe Disney and Sony have a better feel for what it is that they need to achieve in the negotiating room. And maybe, just maybe, they'll come up with that situation sooner rather than later. And we'll get Spider-Man back in the MCU, which frankly is what everybody, Sony and Disney included, wants.
Thank you so much for watching. This has been Virtual Legality. If you enjoyed this video, please like, please subscribe to the channel. We're talking about these kinds of things all the time. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you caught this on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And please do share it around to whoever you might think would be interested. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.